Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Well, Irvin Gomez, thank you for coming on our podcast. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Irvin Gomez. I'm currently the founder and managing partner of Dunor's Family Enterprises, which is a search fund looking to acquire a small business in the Midwest, which I would then operate as CEO. Okay, thank you. And regarding the companies that you're looking for, are you industry agnostic, regionally focused? I do have a focus on region. And when you're focused on a region, you have to be a little bit industry agnostic. But I've also recently expanded my scope to focus more on software-based businesses as well, just given my own software background. But I think if I were to say the areas that I've been focusing on, it's mostly been business services, technology services, as well as healthcare. And looking at your profile, you're a Harvard MBA. Uh, you had an internship at BCG. You're also a financial analyst at State Street. Is that correct? That's right. So these are very respectable brands. You've got quite the resume there. What led to you aiming for these, uh, you know, the best of the best? Uh, that's a great question. I know that this is a theme that always comes up whenever you interview someone in their career, that you would think that it's a linear trajectory, but it really wasn't. Uh, State Street was one of the few places that gave me an offer coming out of undergrad, and it looked like the best offer, so I took it. And then going into my MBA, I had this notion that I wanted to get the credentials and the knowledge and the experience that comes with working at a large consulting firm. And I went through the recruiting process and was lucky enough to receive a offer from, from BCG. So I quickly realized that that's not what I wanted. And so even though it seems like it's it's been something that's premeditated, it really hasn't been. It's a little bit has been a bit of fate and twists along the way. But I think now that I'm searching for a business and hopefully soon can operate a business, I think that's the right path for me. And it came from learning a lot about myself through my time at State Street, through my time at Cattle, and, and through my internship at BCG, about the things that, that I look for in a, in a job. And those three, th those three roles before, they had elements of what I liked, but not all three. Uh, and as I think about entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship gives me a lot of those. Yeah, that's a very comprehensive answer, but if you don't mind, I'd like to focus on BCG because that personally came to me as a surprise. I've spoken to some people from BCG who speak very highly of the firm. It's pretty exciting what they're doing uh, from the outside even. How did you know so quickly, like after the internship that, you know what, I don't want to go after elite consulting. I'd rather be my own boss CEO of a SMB. So previously before BCG, I worked in a sales role at Catalent and there I owned my own book of business. And so every day I would come in and build something new, reach out to a new client, get a new deal in the pipeline. And I really liked that sense of ownership and that sense of autonomy. When I was interning at BCG, suddenly I was at the bottom of the totem pole, a mid-level uh, hire with no responsibility other than doing my specific work stream or the specific analysis that I was assigned. And suddenly I felt a little bit pigeonhole into that specific task, that specific role. And I realized that I really wasn't as motivated as I was when I had my own book of business. And as I thought about my career progression at a consulting firm, 
it would take 10 to 15 years to own my own book of business, to do the, the selling that, that a partner does. And frankly, I'm not that patient. And I wasn't going to wait that long to be able to do the things that I really like, which are selling and having the ball in my hand. And so very quickly, I realized that the role wasn't for me. And so I spent the rest of the summer exploring this path of, of search funds and entrepreneurship through acquisition, and then quickly made the decision right after my internship ended that after I graduated from my MBA, that I would be launching my, my search fund. And I'm guessing that growth is very important for you. You're looking at how you can grow as quickly as possible. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that excites me about being in an entrepreneurship path is that I don't really know what's coming next. There's always a sense of, let's see what's around the corner. Let's see what happens in six months, in, in a year. And that's very different from a much more structured career path where you know that if you do well, within two years, you'll get promoted. You do really well after that. You'll get promoted two, three years after that. And that just seemed a little too much certainty for me. I, I like the ambiguity. I like, I like knowing that uh, it's on me to kind of figure out what comes next. And I can either step on the gas or take my foot off the gas, really depending on my life situation. I see everything as having inherent trade-offs. So with the growth and the uncertainty with the entrepreneurial path, perhaps one of the things that we need to prepare for is that exposure to a large firm and those different perspectives that we would have working in a place like BCG in your case. How have you or how do you intend to build in those different perspectives on your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, that a firm like BCG has endless resources and access to all sorts of databases, all sorts of industry experts. And I think that's what has made them so successful. I think on my end, what I've done is created a bit of a board of advisors in the form of my investors who provide perspective into the entrepreneurship acquisition space specifically. So they have a lot of pattern recognition. They know what's good versus what's great. They know what are the key characteristics in an individual that will make them a good operator. And they also know the pitfalls that come along the way. And so while you know, a place like BCG has endless budget, I've been able to do that without that big of a budget. And just by tapping into the search for community, which honestly has been incredibly helpful over the past year and a half plus that I've been on this journey. Now, with building a board, approaching investors, alignment is of paramount importance. How did you know, like, this investor is good or, or maybe this isn't the right investor for me at the time? Could you share any of your, uh, like, learnings there? Absolutely. Coming out of a place like Harvard, you as a searcher, essentially you have the pick of the lot. You're able to really pick who you want to be your investor. It's a very privileged position that not everyone has. And as a result, you have to be really thoughtful about who do you bring on on this journey. And I thought about it in three buckets. I wanted folks who had been there, done that. So previous searchers who had become investors. I wanted folks who had, um, who represented firms with deep pockets and uh, a deep bench of resources. So those are my inv institutional investors. And then I wanted folks who were more on the mentorship pattern recognition uh, side. And so there were the folks who, or they're the folks who can 
provide some high level insight into the experience, into whether a business is a good business or not, based on what they've seen in the past. And they just have a lot, you know, for lack of a better word, there's gray hair and therefore a lot of experience in this space. And so I, that's how I thought about uh, creating my, my board director slash my investor uh, set um, based on those three buckets. This may sound like an obvious question, but I'd still like to hear your answer. How do you approach like an LOI phase knowing that it has such a high probability of falling through? I think the statistics are like three out of four deals fall through in the LOI phase, but you obviously have to approach it as if it's not going to fall through. What's your mindset like? How do you balance that? The way that I think about it is this is something that was taught to me in my sales days, which is you qualify a deal until you find the red flags. And so the word of the day, every time that you're working on a deal is qualify, qualify, qualify. And so before I get to the LOI stage, I'm already qualifying this business, looking for the red flags, ensuring that it's a business that I can tell a a really good story around. Because if I feel a lot of conviction going into the deal, that conviction will remain as you go through the LOI phase, unless you find an absolute red flag. And that's why I've been so careful about getting a business under LOI, just because I need to have really strong conviction that this is the deal that I'm going to work on, that this is the business that I want to buy. And so I tried to find some of the red flags or some of the obstacles right away before getting under LOI, because that keeps me from spending money and time chasing a deal that will not close. And... I think that I've been more careful than most, probably to some detriment, which I think it's up to debate, about getting a business under LI just because I want to be sure that this is the right business, that this is the right opportunity for me, and this is how I want to spend the next three to four months of my search. Because getting a business under LI and going through that diligence takes up a lot of time and a lot of resources, and my most valuable resource is time. And so I can't waste time on a business that I'm a little bit but there's a lot of questions around it. So I must rather be certain from the very beginning that, you know, my excitement is at 100 at the start of the LOI phase and that by the end, I'm at 70 or 60% of excitement versus being at 60% from the very beginning and then being at 20% by, by the end. You are a little bit over halfway through your search phase, maybe three quarters of the way through the typical uh, traditional search what are your thoughts? Has it pretty much met your expectations? Is it harder, easier, different than you expected going in? I will put that into, I will answer that in two ways. So, so first is that it's a lot harder than I thought. It's definitely easy to buy a business, but it's harder to buy a great business. I could have bought a business a long time ago and been, been done with this search. But I think the, the reason why I went into ETA was to find a great business to acquire and to operate. And that's hard. That's hard. There's millions of businesses out there, but not every business is a great business. Uh, and then the second thing is that I've enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I think that coming back to something we touched on earlier about autonomy and ownership, it's given me full autonomy over my day. It's given me full ownership over my destiny to some extent. And I really like that feeling. Uh, I think even this morning coming into work, I realized just how lucky I am to sit in an office and talk to business owners the entire day and research businesses the entire day. That's a very lucky role and not everyone has that chance. And so I'm definitely grateful that I get to do this on a, on a daily basis. But hopefully, I think what excites me the most is 
crossing that chasm and becoming an operator, hopefully within the next year. I imagine you've looked at many companies, probably in the hundreds, if not thousands at this point. Some of the consultants that I've spoken with say they can't really turn off their consulting mind at this point. And I was curious with, with you looking at so many companies, it's similar to you now where everywhere you go out to dinner or something and, and you're always looking like, would this be a good business? Absolutely. Mostly like when I drive around uh, Chicago, I'm always just looking at service trucks or looking at different advertisements and just keeping an eye on which ones have a local area code. Uh, and it's come to the point where I recognize most of the service trucks driving around Chicago and I know which ones are big national players versus which ones are local players. You can't really turn off your sourcing mindset. Uh, and I think that's, that's how you know you're in the right you're in the right role. I think that a lot of people, you know, come Friday at 6 p.m., they shut their laptop and they don't want to think about work. Whereas for me, I find a lot of joy in thinking about work, thinking about the next company to reach out to. And I think that's how I know that I'm in the, in the right path, at least for now. And I think that hopefully once I become an operator, it will be all encompassing. And I'm really excited for that. What's one of the challenges that you've faced in this journey so far that you overcame and how did you do that? Yeah, so I'm, I've been in it for 14 months now. I think the biggest challenge has been coming up to terms or coming up to speed on the private equity slash deal structuring side. I don't come from a private equity background. I come from a sales background and my exposure to finance was a little bit during my time at State Street, but frankly, mostly during my MBA. And so for a lot of people, structuring a deal or modeling something out is just first nature. You spent four or five years doing it in, at, a, at a private equity firm. But for me, that was the hardest thing, just learning all the terminology, learning about how to model out outcomes, how to model out the growth trajectory of a business, how to structure a deal, the implications of that, all the different terms and conditions that you have to think about as you structure a deal. For a lot of these deals, it was the first time that I was doing an earnout, or the first time that I was doing a seller note. And so this is where having a great set of investors leaning in and helping me has been really, really helpful. Yeah, it seems like you very much want to be a master of your own destiny or captain of your own ship, as it were. So you're you're not going into like an accelerator where you might have a cohort um, from different backgrounds uh, looking at deals together or be, being able to bounce ideas off of each other. And you, you don't have a partner either. You're, you're, so you're doing a solo traditional search. Uh, that seems very deliberate. Could you talk a little bit about the process, you, you know, you want to be a searcher, but you're um, kind of looking at the different models and you selected this one? Sure. As I thought about uh, risk and reward, I'm taking a risk by foregoing a very, you know, steady salary from like a company like BCG. So there, I'm foregoing that, I'm foregoing the stability that comes with that, the perks and the benefits of that. Uh, and as I thought about, okay, if I'm giving that up, what do I need? in return? What do I need to be looking for in return? And I thought that I need to have a reward that is way bigger than what I, the opportunity cost of BCG. And frankly, I, you know, if I'm going to take this risk, I might as well go all in because there's really, I don't have, really have anything to lose. So might as well try to get all the upside on my own. So that's one. And then the second is, this is something that they taught us in, in one of our entrepreneurship classes, is that as an entrepreneur, your role is to remove uncertainty one decision at a time. And as I thought about adding a partner 
or um, going into an accelerator, there were, there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with that. The accelerator, won't, you may not be able to dictate where you want to be or the industry that you want to be, that you're going to be in. And as a partner search, people are complex, right? Working on a team is, is complex, especially when it comes to something that is such, uh, that will play such an important role in, in the lives of the searchers. And so I thought all of that, all of that added a lot of ambiguity and I'd much rather remove ambiguity and have me be the decision maker of what kind of business do I want to buy, where do I want to be, and how long do I want to stay with that business. That makes a lot of sense. I'd like to pivot now a little bit to talk about your cultural background. Could you remind me of what age were you when you came to the States? Yeah, I, I was 10 years old when I came to the States. And do you recall at all like what that experience was like? Yeah, I I mean, I think that the U.S., especially when you come in and you're coming into a country where you don't know a language at all, it can definitely be a little bit jarring. I had the benefit of being, of my parents picking a community that was, uh, that was predominantly Mexican. And so from a language perspective, I was able to communicate at school a little bit, but just from a cultural perspective, it was all different. It was the first time that I wasn't able to participate in class as often as I wanted to. Uh, I had to really get adjusted to the norms of the classroom and the social norms. And so it definitely was uh, an, an adjustment period, I would say, that took you know, three to four years for me to fully adjust. But as I think about, that was 22 years ago or 21 years ago. I think that at this point, I spent two thirds of my life in the U.S., uh, and so I would say that I'm fully, I'm fully comfortable in playing in both sides, leaning into my Mexican identity, leaning into my American identity, very comfortable in both. Pain can kind of open up to a superpower. So I imagine that's got to be an incredibly challenging situation. It's already challenging if you go to school the next town over, but going into a place where you, you don't know the language, you have thoughts inside your head that you can't communicate and everything that comes with that. How do you think that helped you with where you're at now? As I think about my experience in, in feeling like an outsider, I think that I've, I became really good at reading the room and reading people's expressions, reading people's emotions and how they were reacting to me. And, uh, and then I think that that led me to uh, be really good at sales and using my ability to listen before speaking and to asking really good questions uh, to really understand where the other person is and really understand what, what do I need to do in order to get this person on my side. Um, and so I think to some extent that camouflaging slash ability to relate, I really to find ability to find common ground made me really successful in sales. And then now taking it into the ETA world, essentially as a searcher, you're a salesperson, you're selling yourself you're selling the business that you want to acquire. You're trying to convince the owner that you're the right person for the job or for, for, for their company. And so you got to find common ground. And I think that because of my experience as an immigrant, I am really good at finding common ground with owners who come from very, very different backgrounds than mine. But I think that I'm able to read their body language, read what their, money, what their motivations are, ask the really good questions to kind of figure out which cards within my, within my deck can I play in order to make them feel comfortable with me. And I think a lot of that comes from, from my experience as an immigrant. 
Yeah, I think you probably have a higher than average mental agility, which would probably serve you well in, in all realms, but certainly as a CEO of a, of a firm. With your family, I can't imagine parents being more proud of their son, um, but there's you know a cultural difference. Like, do they do they know the significance of uh, being working at BCG? Do they know? I mean, I I assume they they've heard of Harvard, but what what is that like when you're very proud that you got into you know this this high level, and then you talk to mom and dad, are they like you know still kind of trying to push you higher, or they're like, wow, you you did such a great job, you exceeded our expectations. That's a great question. Uh, when my parents came to the U.S., essentially all they really wanted us was for us to go to school. And school was just this ambiguous, undefined term. I think that I could have gone to a state school and they would have been just as proud. I think no one in the family ever thought that Dartmouth or Yale or Verberg were going to be in the picture at all. Uh, it just so happened that we got incredibly lucky along the way and worked really hard for it. And so I think that both my parents and I had to do a little bit of learning of what it meant of what the, the stature and the gravitas that comes from going to places like these. I didn't really know what the Ivy League was until I was applying to it. Um, and so I think as a family, we've learned what it means to go to a place like this and uh, what doors that opens. And so I have to say that for that, it, it definitely has been a, a learning process of the family. Uh, and I think my parents are just incredibly proud of, of how far we've come of our accomplishments. But I think more than anything, they're really proud of, of the character of my brother and I. Um, because at the end of the day, that's, that's what they care about the most, not necessarily the diplomas on the wall or what's on my resume. They care about the type of person that I am. And I think that it's because of that, because of that character and because of those characteristics that they instilled in me that I still have. It's because I've been able to get to this point. And so it's a, I would say that they're very well aware. They're very, very proud. But I think the accomplishments aside, they're proud of, uh, of the type of person that my brother and I have become. And honestly, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, for my parents. Yeah, it's great that you, you have that family bond and you're all doing so well. Have you thought about uh, what the trade-off was with coming to the States? Like, do you ever think, like, what would my life be like in, in Mexico now or looking in the future? Are you thinking, like, you might like to share your time between the two? I think the biggest trade-off is that in Mexico, it's very much a community-based upbringing. And so you're surrounded by family, you're surrounded by a town, the community raises you to some extent. Coming to the U.S. is very much a an individualistic culture, and so the family raises you, but the town or the community doesn't really raise you. Uh, so I think one of the things that I missed out on was that feeling of community and that feeling of clear attachment to the culture and the traditions of, of that community. I think in the U.S., it took me a while to really understand American culture. It's taken me a while to fully adopt a lot of the traditions and a lot of the cultural norms in the U.S. And so I think that the biggest trade-off is just my connection to, to Mexico. Uh, and as I think about in the future, how would I want to split my time? I think, as I mentioned earlier, two-thirds of my life has been in the U.S. And so I think that I would be an outsider in Mexico if I were to go back. Uh, and to some extent, I'm still a bit of an outsider here in the U.S., and so I'm neither here nor there, right? I'm in between, and I think that's just a common experience with being an immigrant. But I, 
I am incredibly privileged in everything that I've, every opportunity that I've been given. And yes, the cost definitely does take an emotional toll, but it's, it's been worth the, it's been worth that, honestly, when I think about what my brother and I have accomplished. Do you think that you would try to instill some of that community in the company that you acquire? I mean, I think it really depends on the, the existing culture, right? Because here's where we come back to this theme of camouflaging and to some extent fitting in. I think that coming into a company, I wouldn't come in with a notion of what I want to do with it. More than anything, I would try to figure out what's the best way for me to blend in in the first place. Um, because, again, you're taking over a company that has been ran by the same person for 20 plus years. You want to be really careful about the type of change that that you bring about. And so I would think about, I would think about what's the existing culture? Does that work for the business? Uh, and how can we improve it? And if we improve it, what are the best ways of doing it? And I think the best ways of doing that is by leading by example. And so for me, one of the things that I know I will do for sure is eat lunch in the lunchroom with, with, uh, with the employees. Um, because I think that shows that I'm, just in, as much in the trenches as they are. Um, so I think that's one, but I think it's really hard for me to say that I'm gonna bring in some notion of, uh, of what culture should be before learning about what the culture is. That sounds almost like the, the inverse of what you mentioned with uh, entrepreneurship, uh, removing uncertainty one step at a time. They're understanding what makes it work one step at a time and being careful not to disturb that before you understand it. Mm-hmm. Well, Irvin, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to, to mention as we wrap up? No, no, I think that's it. I think they, uh, thanks for asking some really good questions. Uh, this has been really fun. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for talking to us today. Good luck to, with finding your perfect company. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.